You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John chapter 16, verses 4 through 33. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We did not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full." I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. For now we, know that you, uh, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us to understand it. Spirit, we pray that you would lift our eyes to Jesus. Might we see him in your word. We pray for these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. May be seated. Glad to see you all here this evening. Uh, it's a torch night, so if you're a fourth through sixth grader, you can head out with the Gozers now to talk about the text that we just heard read for us. Well, I was in Dallas on Tuesday and Wednesday for my very first annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. I heard my seminary president say at lunch on Wednesday that the Southern Baptist Convention meeting is a big family reunion, and who wouldn't want to miss, or who would want to miss a family reunion? You want to be there, but no one wants to live at a family reunion. Uh, so I'm glad to be. I'm glad to be back here in Albuquerque with you, back in real life. Uh, you likely heard about the convention this week on the news or in social media. Uh, maybe you didn't. When there's a family that big, it's undoubtedly true that there's going to be some weird and quirky and, quite frankly, some tone-deaf things that are going on. But I left that meeting so, so encouraged by the direction of this convention, the cooperation of just so many like-minded pastors and churches that I was with this week, and even more encouraging uh, appointments and elections of some folks to some uh, positions of national leadership. So for all its warts, I'm so thankful that we as a church are in happy cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. The problem with me leaving on Monday evening was... uh, that I wasn't going to get back until Wednesday night. And the problem is, is that uh, Wednesday was Marcy's birthday. Uh, So when I first pitched the idea of me going to Dallas about a month ago or so, I said, so it'd be like June 11th to the 13th. And she was like, June 13th, huh? And I was like, yeah. So is that all right? And she was like, yeah, it's June 13th. I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Uh, she was like, my birthday, you jerk. And I was like, oh, right. Uh, well, well, what do you think? Uh, so I went anyway. Uh, well, with, uh, with other presents to come later on Monday afternoon, like all day Monday, morning and afternoon before I went to the airport, I was telling, like drilling into my nine-year-old and my eight-year-old's heads. Uh, all right. Wednesday is your mom's birthday. We had all these cards written out and made. We hid them in their room. And I said, the very first thing that you are to do when you wake up on Wednesday morning is to come into her room or come into the kitchen if she's already up and sing happy birthday to her. Bring these cards. Make her feel special. I will be in Dallas. It's up to you, boys. Uh, So two days later on Wednesday morning when I called Marcy, I was like, all right, so did Owen and Caleb do anything? No. No, they didn't do anything. Uh, It's like one of the first times in their short lives that I wish that they had a cell phone that I could text them on Wednesday morning. Don't forget. The thing is, I was hammering it all day Wednesday or all day Monday because by Wednesday I knew that they would forget. Uh, I knew that they might not remember to obey me, to obey my commands for them. Not just out of compulsion because I've forced them to, but out of genuine love for their mother. I provided everything they needed. All that they had to do was just remember my last words to them. I hope you see where this is going. Jesus has been doing the same thing, the same thing for the past two chapters in John for his disciples. Chapters 14 and 15 that we've seen over the past few weeks and on to chapter 16 tonight are Jesus' last instructions to his disciples, his little children as it were, his deathbed last words before he leaves 
not on a jet plane, but ascending into heaven, uh, that they might remember and love, love each other and love God. He has provided or he will provide upon his departure everything that they will need. All they need to do is just remember his words. So throughout the book, but especially beginning last week, Jesus began talking a lot about the world. A lot about the world. So continue this theme of the world. Next week in the high priestly prayer, in chapter 17. But tonight, we'll see, see Jesus wrap up chapter 16 under three headings. That Jesus leaves the world to the delight of the world, but he's overcome the world. He leaves the world to the delight of the world, but yet he's overcome the world. So first of all, he leaves the world. So he tells his disciples in verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And what things is he talking about? I, I haven't been saying these things from the beginning. Well, everything that he's been saying in chapters 14 and 15. But most immediately, what we saw last week, that the world will hate them. He hasn't been telling them these things from the beginning of his time with them. That the world will hate them because it hated him first. And he hasn't necessarily told them or warned them of these kinds of things because for the past three years of his ministry, he's been around He's been around to, like a magnet, attract the hatred of the world away from them and to himself. Like a shield, like protect them behind himself um, from the hatred of the world. But now that he's leaving, the magnet and the shield from the world will be gone. Now they will be these little magnets all over the world, attracting the hatred of the world and the, the opposition of the world upon themselves. He is going away. He's leaving to the one who sent him. But then he says something strange in verse 5. He says, now I'm going away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? And the reason that this is strange is if you've been paying attention in uh, John's gospel, that this is exactly what Peter asked Jesus in chapter 13. Just before Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times, Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And then, nine verses later in chapter 14, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. <laughs> so the reason that Jesus is saying uh, that they haven't been asking this is because they really haven't been asking in the right kind of motivation. They've said the words, but they haven't asked the question that he wants them to ask. They've been asking these questions because of verse 6, that sorrow has filled their hearts. When Peter and Thomas were previously asking about where Jesus is going, they're focusing on the wrong things. They're asking the wrong question. For them, Jesus going away sounds like something, like the, the worst thing imaginable. How could he leave us now? We're going to be sad without him. Peter and Thomas were asking about the way of his departure. Why it sounds like it's not a good thing. Sorrow had filled their hearts when they asked. So Jesus now, he's focusing on his destination, his glorification at the right hand of the Father. They have become so inwardly sad about losing Jesus that they aren't realizing that his coming death is actually the way to the kingdom, the way to their life. It's not just better that Jesus goes away to a place of glory and that should be they should be happy. Like He's like, come on guys, I'm going to a great place, you should be happy for me. Like, like, we're going to Carlsbad Caverns tomorrow on vacation, and you should be happy for me because we get to experience something awesome. He's not just saying, you should be happy because I'm going to an awesome place. He's saying, my leaving, you should be happy, not 
filled with sorrow, you should be happy for yourselves as well. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we've already talked quite a bit about the Holy Spirit from chapter 14, and really throughout the book. If you have missed the first 15 chapters of John's Gospel, you can find all this on the website. We've talked about the Holy Spirit a lot, how we can tend toward thinking about the Holy Spirit like our pituitary gland. We know it's there. We know it's there for some function. It's useful for some way, but I'm really not aware of its working in my life. But it's Jesus here is reiterating to his disciples that it is actually better for him to go away so that they might have the Spirit. Which, again, if the disciples heard it then, and I think as we're reading today, on the surface that sounds kind of ridiculous, right? Like, who among us wouldn't want Jesus to, like, sit at the dinner table with us? Right? He, he would be very wise. He would be very encouraging. I could invite my friends along to meet Jesus personally and physically there. Who wouldn't want Jesus to come along uh, with us to our kids' sports games? He could help us not get so frustrated with umpires or referees. He could give a, a word of calming reassurance to parents who are getting heated and bothered. Right? Who wouldn't want him to just like sit there in a rocking chair in your bedroom? Like just helping you go to sleep. Like the little old lady who whispers hush. Uh, by the way, that old rabbit lady in Goodnight Moon, I'm pretty sure gave me nightmares when I was a child. Like she's supposed to be calming and reassuring. She's actually quite creepy. Anyway, uh, where was I? Yeah, maybe Jesus could help us sleep. Maybe when, when Jesus is just sitting over there in, in, in the corner in the rocking chair, right, and the alarm goes off, I'd be more willing and excited to jump right up and read the Bible and pray. Well, and if Jesus is right there, maybe I wouldn't even have to read the Bible and pray. I could just talk to the second person of the Trinity right there in my room. That'd be wonderful. But perhaps that's the point. The Holy Spirit will come to bring not just understanding about God. After all, Jesus can do that. He's helping the disciples understand a lot about God. But the Spirit comes that we might actually know God. Not just peripherally understand things about God because Jesus is beside us, but that we might actually know God as our Father because the Spirit is inside of us. This is what Paul is trying to explain in Romans 8, where he said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Without the working of the Spirit in our life, we cannot know God as Father. This is the current state of the disciples without the Spirit filling them. They do not and cannot know God as Father. And all of this is why our new Southern Baptist president, J.D. Greer, he titled his excellent little book, he titles it this, Jesus Continued, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. That's better. The Spirit to live inside you is better than Jesus continually beside you. You cannot know God as Father with Jesus beside you. The disciples know Jesus. They're understanding more about God the Father than they had three years ago. That's undoubtedly true. But they cannot, with supreme and utter confidence, 
because of their sins being forgiven, because of their souls being cleansed, providing room for the Holy Spirit to flood, overwhelm, and pour into their lives, they cannot with confidence know God and know him as Father. The Spirit comes that you might understand the Scriptures, that you might understand Christ, not in a misunderstanding way like the disciples currently do, but that you might know God. This is better, and this is why it is better for Jesus to go away. But even still, it's not just for individuals, individual Christians' salvation and their comfort, not just that we might individually know God as Father, that he will pour out the Spirit. There's another purpose, an indirect and secondary purpose. In verse 8, Jesus says, And when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a sense in which Jesus has removed himself as the shield for the church because now, by the power of the Spirit, they're no longer to live on the defensive with a shield. They're now, by the power of the Spirit, to go on the offense. The tables have turned. Again, not just attempting to be obnoxiously offensive humans. We Christians just go off mouthing off to every uh, unbeliever out there being as, not, as obnoxious as we can uh, and so that they come to hate the gospel because we're mostly just cranky people. But that the kingdom of heaven establishes a beachhead at the empty tomb that now the kingdom can use to continue and uh, expand in its invasion of the world. In Matthew 16, when Jesus tells Peter that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, this is not some like siege of Gondor type thing where the armies of darkness have the church trapped into a city and they're just hoping to make it out in the end. No, the gates are not the defensive gates of the church trying to keep the world out. The gates are the gates of hell. The church, with its empowered message of grace and mercy and love, will overcome the gates of hell. These gates cannot and will not prevail with the church empowered by the Spirit and on the offense. The tables have turned. I mean, seriously, that, that kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of power that in the movie the Nazis are looking for, right? If they can just get their hands on this kind of un unrivaled and unmatched power, then the world cannot stand against them. That power no longer dwells in a box. That power no longer dwells in a building. If you are a Christian, that power dwells in you. Power! Not like face-melting power, like in the movie, but that the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through his people will come convicting the world. Quickening, speaking, convicting the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. Left to ourselves, without the light of Christ, the world in its darkness doesn't know, cannot know what is acceptable and unacceptable before the Lord. Those of the world of whom all of us either once were or perhaps you perhaps still are, the world remains oblivious to the darkness of sin, about what God desires, about his right worship, what it means to love him, and therefore to actually love your neighbor. The world remains oblivious to righteousness, 
the goodness of God, the other, the otherness, the purity of him, of his holiness, without the Spirit speaking through the church, God is just like the man upstairs. He's not a consuming fire that he describes himself to be. Without the convicting speaking of the world, or of, of, of the church, the world remains oblivious about the wrath and anger of God against the world. The world who makes it its daily mission, an unrelenting commitment to overthrow God and his good creation. So the Spirit has come to speak through his people with power to convict the world of all of this. Now guys, because of the powerful outworking of the Holy Spirit of your life, this should just come. This should just come and speak through us as his people. But I think this comes as a good challenge to us as well. Is there room in your life, in your witness of your life, and through your words for a loving yet prophetic speaking to the world? My concern is, is that we have actually become too much like the world, many of us, so that there's actually not much difference. There's not much room to speak to the world. My concern is that in using excuses like, I just want to be able to have conversations around the water cooler with my neighbors, with my coworkers, uh, just about the things that they like, we end up reading, we end up watching, we end up listening to all kinds of things that Christians just should not participate in. Now, I'm absolutely not suggesting that we like all tonight after, uh, after our service, we go get our CD books out of our car and we make a bonfire and we toss them all in, all the secular CDs that we've got. I can see like all you mid-30s people, like you're like remembering 1997 and youth camp. Uh, nor am I suggesting that we all just only watch Fireproof and God's Not Dead. I hope you know me well enough for that. Jesus will say next week in chapter 17 that he doesn't take us out of the world. He's, remo- he's taken us from the world, but not out of the world. Removing ourselves into a completely isolated Christian subculture, I think, is generally a pretty bad idea. But how much more clear would our conversations be at work or in the driveway with our neighbors about Fifty Shades of Grey, or about Game of Thrones, or any number of other movies and shows or books that we've read, how much more clear would that conversation with our neighbor be if it was like, yeah, you know what? I really do love great TV. I love great movies. But since becoming a Christian, God has given me just a different understanding of sexuality that I once had. My, my temptation, my temptation still today is to want to use other people, to, to think of their value to me as their sexual attractiveness or their availability to me. That's still an ongoing and self-centered desire of mine. So man, even though, man, that story sounds like something that would otherwise be right up my alley. I'd really, I think there's part of me that would really love to get into that show with you. I'm really trying to limit the ways in my life that could be encouraging me to keep using people uh, for the way that they look or instead of like loving and serving them. I guarantee you that that conversation will be much more clear than, yeah, wasn't last night's episode awesome? 
It was so good. And let me tell you about some redemptive themes about how this looks like Jesus, right? Uh, your co- you think by doing that, your coworker is thinking, yeah, see, Christians are cool too. This guy likes all the things that I like. But really, that's not what your coworker is thinking. Here's what your coworker is thinking. See, uh, th- okay, for the first time, maybe here's a Christian uh, who likes the same things I like. He's kind of cool. He likes the same movies I like. He likes the same books that I like, only he goes to church on Sunday. I don't want to go to church on Sunday, so I'll just keep living my life the same way I'd like, right? If the only difference in our lives is that we go to church on Sunday, then that's actually not much different. Perhaps you've heard me share this before, but worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness in our lives is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Jesus, he leaves the world so that he can then send the Spirit into his people so that the Spirit might speak to, might challenge, and might convict the world of its worldliness, of the darkness in which it's living. So are there areas in your life that have just become too worldly? that have muzzled the prophetic power of Christ and his kingdom to an unbelieving world around you. And again, let's, not let, let's let the offense of the gospel be the offense and not just our crankiness. Let's not let the water cooler conversation be like, uh, no, I didn't watch last, ne- last night's episode. I'm a Christian, right? That's not doing well. Uh, the Spirit convicts the world of sin and judgment, but of righteousness as well, of the goodness and beauty of Christ, of his attractiveness, not just of the things that he hates. So Jesus will go on in verse 12. He's, he's said that he will, can, the Spirit will convict the world through you, his people. And then he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus has just said is that there is much more to say. There is much more to teach but the disciples still cannot possibly understand it. They don't yet have the Spirit. He'll teach more later. He'll explain more later. Jesus will even, by the Spirit, inspire the rest of the New Testament. Right? All of that's coming. There's much more to say. He will teach these disciples and all of his future disciples the whole counsel of God by his word. All of that is yet to come. But all of this, the work of the Spirit is always to point us to Christ, who then points us to the glory of the Father. Now, I know this is extremely dangerous to make illustrations about the Trinity. It's, it's generally a bad idea. Don't do it. But I'm going to wade very lightly into this. That the triune God is like a river. The Rio Grande is the same river in Albuquerque as it is in Taos, and as it is in Colorado. The Spirit, here in Albuquerque, is pointing us upstream, upstream to Jesus, who then points us further upstream to the Father. 
So in the same way that Jesus proceeds from the headwaters of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from Jesus. All this the same water, but distinct in its place and its personhood. So that's why we sang tonight. We sang together, just like a few minutes ago. We sang, O Spirit, lift our eyes to Jesus. Help us see him in your word. We did not sing, O Spirit, help us have an intensely emotional experience now in you. Like overcome our brain and move our bodies around or something. Like that's not what we sang. We sang, Spirit, help us to see Jesus clearly that by seeing Jesus, we might know, revel in, and glory in the glory of the Father. This is the work of the Spirit, to point us to Christ, who then points us further upstream to the glory of God the Father. Incredible. This is incredible. This is all the work of the Spirit in our life, but all of this is coming after and only after Jesus leaves the world. These are final instructions to his disciples. He's telling them, don't forget, I'm leaving. This is coming, but it's good. Don't forget, when I leave, you'll be tempted toward a disorienting sadness, but don't forget. These are final instructions, but Jesus leaves the world. Now, secondly, to the delight of the world. It's for the disciples' good, but it's also to the delight and the joy and the happiness of the world around them. So Jesus says in verse 16, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And then the disciples say amongst themselves, what's he talking about? They have no clue. Again, they completely don't understand the nature of the inbreaking kingdom of God. To which Jesus says, like, guys, I know you don't get it. I know you don't understand. So let me explain. In verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He just said, I know you've heard me say that I'm leaving the world, but you still aren't hearing me. You don't understand the nature of my leaving, about my coming, suffering, and death. It's coming. Like tomorrow afternoon and evening. All day tomorrow and tomorrow evening, I will be hanging on the cross. It is coming. Even if you did understand the nature of what's happening, my suffering for your acceptance, my death for your life, in the moment, it will not be a good time for anyone. The world who since Adam has been opposed to God, will reach the very height, the pinnacle of its millennia-old opposition against God. It will kill its maker. It will kill its creator. Like the scene at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of Aslan's death, the world will dance and party in its revelry as it assumes it has finally after millennia, finally rid itself of that annoying light that keeps trying to force its way in. Finally, the world will rejoice. All the while, the wrath and anger of God for 
the world's rejection of him will be poured out tomorrow. It will all be happening tomorrow. The wrath of God poured out. But here's the surprising part. Not on the world. Amazing. The world, at the height of its opposition, will not receive the wrath of God. The wrath of God will be poured out, but not on the world, but on the Christ. Incredible. On the one who died, so that those of the world might be won over, might be pulled out of the world, and instead into the very family of God. But he says, you're not going to get it. The world will be rejoicing all around you, and you will be weeping and lamenting. You'll be thinking, wait, we, we thought he was God. We thought he had come to bring the kingdom. We thought he would win. We thought he would reign, and it's over. But Jesus says, hang in there. All of that, you'll see, will not, be, not only be proven true, but it will be proven true more amazingly than you could have ever imagined. So he says, let me give you an illustration. He's into sermon illustrations. He says in verse 21, Jesus says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. For those of us who have never delivered a child, uh, those of you who have might feel like, I have no business talking about childbirth and pain, but Jesus has never had a child either. And so he feels confident and comfortable doing it. So I'll just go ahead and do it too. Uh, Even though many of us in this room have not felt the pain of the actual birth process, I think we can at least understand what he's saying. No woman who is approaching her due date is actually excited about the hours of labor that is about to come. Pain is coming. The thought of labor can bring anxiety, nervousness, fear. No one willingly in any other context looks forward to moments or hours of certain pain. But what is coming on the other side? What's coming on the other side of those hours of pain? Life. It's not needless and pointless pain. It's purposeful pain that brings life and joy, fullness of emotion. Even such joy that most often the mother doesn't even care about the trauma of labor that she's just experienced because now she's holding in her arms her son or her daughter. Forget it. All that happened just a few hours ago, a few minutes ago. I'm holding my child. So also, just like that, verse 22, Jesus says, you have sorrow now, intense trauma, pain, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Hang in there, he tells his disciples. You're not going to know what hit you tomorrow night. You're not going to know what hit you for a few days, but then you will see me again. And you'll have a joy that no one, not the Romans, not the Jewish leadership, not the hatred of the world that I told you about in chapter 15, not even the coming persecution of all of you and the coming death of most of you. No one, not your doubt, not your anxiety, not the evil one himself, none of that will take your joy from you because you will have seen me. 
the living and risen Christ. In that day, he says in verse 23, you'll finally understand. You will finally understand who I am and what I have done for you. You'll finally begin praying to the Father in my name, coming to him through me by the power of the Spirit. He's told them to pray in his name lots of times, but it seems as though they've just been praying to God like they've always prayed, like Jews had prayed for centuries. Finally now, after they see him resurrected, they'll finally come to him or come through him by the power of the Spirit, and you'll have your prayers answered. Continuing his theme from the past three chapters. So Jesus will leave the world for their good, despite the delight of the world that is, uh, has opposed him to his death. But the, the coming disorienting sorrow and sadness will not be the end. Because lastly, he has overcome the world. He has overcome the world by his life and his death and his resurrection. In verse 25, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. You'll finally understand everything. No more questions. Jesus has been speaking in figures of speech, parables sometimes. The world, even his disciples, haven't understood at many points of his teaching ministry they couldn't have even understood had he spoken plainly he's made it even more confusing because because he's not speaking plainly but after his death and his resurrection he will not only speak plainly but they will finally because they are able to because of the power of the spirit to illumine to shine light onto his words now they will understand They will understand the the cleansing forgiveness that he brings. That through their faith in the death and the blood of Christ, they will understand, finally, their change of status from world to now not of the world. They will understand their status from enemy of God to friend of God, from orphan to son or daughter And it's not just that Jesus, the Son of God, will stand on our behalf as our mediator, as we pray. That's true. He is our great high priest. He ushers us into the presence of God through his blood. But it's not that we, the forgiven ones, the made right ones, get to now pray to God because we've got this Jesus figure interceding on our behalf. But God really isn't all that interested in our prayers, but he has to listen because Jesus is mediating for us. That he's like some reluctant God up there who really doesn't care about the prayers of his people. But Jesus, standing as the go-between, makes it so he has to reluctantly. No. Verse 26, Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. If you are in Christ, then God the Father loves you. Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, because Jesus is the go-between making him. God the Father loves you as you currently are, a son or daughter because of your love for Christ. Not some future cleaned up version of you, but you today. 
And on this Father's Day, he hears and he responds better than any earthly father hears and responds to the requests of his children. So sons and daughters of God, bring your requests to him. As Peter says in 1 Peter, cast your anxiety on him. Not just because he's commanding you to, but what does Peter say? Cast your anxiety on him because he cares. The God, the creator of the universe, cares for you. Your anxiety, because he is your father, you are his son or daughter. So Jesus says, in verse 28, I came from the father and I've come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. To which, after all of this, after all this teaching, now the disciples say in verse 29, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. But the disciples are over-exuberant and overconfident. Kind of like Peter was just an hour or so earlier in chapter 13 when he told Jesus, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. They think they understand the nature of Jesus as king. They think that they will never leave him, never falter in their faith. They say, now we know that you know all things and that you come from God. To which Jesus responds with just a hint of holy sarcasm, I think. In verse 31, oh, now you believe? (laughs) Now? Really? You guys have no idea what you're talking about. And you are putting way too much confidence in yourselves. So here's the crystal ball. Here's the crystal ball of your next 24 to, I don't know, 85 hours or so. Just look into the future. Behold, verse 32, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered. Each to his own home and will leave me alone. The hour, the hour that John has been pointing to over and over and over and over again in the past 16 chapters, the hour is coming, the hour of his death. And the hour indeed has come. After his prayer at the end of this next chapter of 17, he will be arrested. Right at the beginning of chapter 18, the hour has come. It's, it's coming, right? It's come now. And at his hour, the hour of his death, none of his disciples will be there. They will all prove themselves to be the weak sheep that they are. None of them will jump up saying, hey, we're with him. He knows all things and we believe that he came from God. No, they will skitter away in fear. Peter even flat out denying him with his words. But Jesus does not need the support of his disciples, the acclaim of kings and rulers, the worship of the world. He says, yet I am not alone. Though you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. Now this doesn't contradict what Mark records for us when Jesus dies hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's ultimate abandonment of Christ at that moment on the cross demonstrates God the Father's faithfulness to the triune plan of redemption. But what Jesus is emphasizing here over against the overconfidence of his disciples that despite the faithlessness of his closest friends, God the Father will always remain faithful. 
faithful to his promises, faithful to his son, and indeed because of his faithfulness to his promises and to his son, faithful to his faithless people. But what's been the point of all this, this entire three-chapter last speech, in his last words directly to his disciples, his last words that they might remember before he prays this gloriously amazing prayer in chapter 17, his last direct words to his disciples, he says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The cross of Christ marks the greatest place of victory in the entire history of the world. It doesn't look like it. The cross of Christ looks like shame. It looks like loss and pain and death. But the cross of Christ, through the lens of heaven, in reality, the cross of Christ looks like life. It looks like love and forgiveness, and it looks like victory. Jesus has overcome the world of darkness. If you are in Christ, he has overcome the world of darkness in your own heart. It's incredible what the Spirit has done in overcoming the world in your life. Praise the Lord, he's broken you of pride and of self-confidence. He has overcome your opposition against God. Verse 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. The world is not going away. It will continue to oppose God until Christ returns. We will still experience pain and loss. He doesn't remove that from the Christian's life. Marginalization, persecution, death, Perhaps not death as martyrs, but all of us will experience death, whether in our own lives or in the lives of close and loved ones. The world will continue to hate Christ's people because it has first hated Christ. And we might be tempted to give up following him, to depart from him, skitter away in fear, to say it's not worth it. But God is faithful. Without the power of the Spirit, none of us would remain faithful to Christ. None of us would keep returning to him for his grace, but he overcomes and he sustains. So as we walk out of here this evening, this is what I want us to hear. His last words to his disciples here, have courage. Be brave. Be bold. Have courage in your fight against the sin that remains in your life. Why? Because the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. He has overcome the world of darkness within you. Have courage. Be bold. Fight for his sake. Have courage with your neighbors and unbelieving friends that they might hear the gospel and that the Spirit might overcome the world of darkness in their own lives. And then pray for the Spirit to work in their lives just as he has with you. Have courage in the midst of marginalization, of persecution. We Christians should be right at home on the margins. We should feel right at home there on the margins because Jesus lived his entire life there. But he has overcome the world and he has won the victory. We often sing that song, Victory in Jesus, and it couldn't be more true. Life and victory, victory over sin, over death and despair, 
but it's not our victory. We don't go out and fight and fight and fight hoping that we might win. We go out with courage because he has won. Like the people of Portugal on Friday, right? Like there's just random, regular old people walking around in Lisbon who then get to party in the streets because of an almost superhuman effort of Cristiano Ronaldo. They get to party, celebrate in victory, with which something they had nothing to do, right? <laughs> These people in Lisbon weren't even in Russia. And yet they're partying and celebrating in the streets because of his work. I think that might be the first time anyone has ever equated Cristiano Ronaldo with Jesus. But uh, the victory that Jesus has won, we celebrate in. We revel in. But it's not just, here's the thing, here's the thing. It's not just some ongoing celebration in the streets because of what Jesus has done. In the world, we will continue to have tribulation. But take heart. Let me leave you with this commentator's, with the commentator's words on this text. Listen to this. As long as a Christian is in the world, he will be pressed as though by a great mob. He will be crushed in spirit as though great crushing weights were lying on his chest. He will know spiritual anguish like that of a mother in labor. This Jesus told us. When he speaks, therefore, of peace, it is not the peace of unruffled days, but the inner confidence of the warrior who is weary, who is thirsty, outnumbered and wounded, but who fights bravely on, confident of the outcome, assured of the victory. We are not saved from trouble. We are saved in trouble. Take heart, Christ Church. Have courage. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your victory. We are thankful for your fight, your fight against ungodliness, your fight against worldliness, your fight against the darkness and the opposition of the world who has opposed you since creation. But Father, we who are your sons and daughters, we are thankful that you did not leave the world to remain condemned, but that you, because of your great love for the world, have come to fight and overcome the world in us. Thank you for pursuing us to the end, to your own death, Lord Jesus. But you, not staying dead, but raised in victorious power because of your righteousness, because of your holiness, because of the faithfulness of God to your promises, you have you've been raised to new life, that you might raise us to new life, out of our death, out of our darkness. Praise God. Father, help us to understand this reality all the more. Help this give us the peace that we have, that the victory is assured even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of tribulation. Father, might this give us courage, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq dot com.